Another big challenge is that methane comes from all kinds of different sources in the oil and gas industry. So it comes from leaky equipment, like pneumatic devices. It can come from venting or the deliberate release of, of methane during you know, certain parts of, of oil and gas operations. It comes from flaring or incomplete flaring. And some of these events are really big and some of them are just small continuous leaks. And to cut methane, you really have to tackle all of them. If you look at the overall problem, a big challenge is how do you deal with the so-called super emitters? So these are infrequent events that are really big and have a big impact. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, my colleague Ben Cahill looks at the efforts to reduce methane emissions. Methane is a potent greenhouse gas with important implications for climate change, particularly in the near term. Because it is a short-lived greenhouse gas, reducing methane emissions quickly is one of the best ways to slow the pace of global warming. Ben has been leading work at CSIS to understand the regulations and policies to reduce methane emissions from the oil and gas industry. He talks today with Program Director Joseph Mikett about recent progress, focusing particularly on the current approach in the EU and the emerging regulations in the United States. I'll turn it over to Joseph and Ben now for this timely discussion. Ben, I'm really happy to talk to you today. You've written this new brief, What's Next for Oil and Gas Methane Regulations, Emerging Rules in the United States and the European Union. I'd like to start just at the high level. Why is methane such a priority for governments in the United States and Europe? Yeah, thanks, Joseph. It's good to talk with you today. Methane has attracted a lot of attention for the last couple of years. And the reason is that, as you said, it is a really potent greenhouse gas uh, in the first 20 years in the atmosphere. Methane has more than 80 times the warming potential of CO2. And it doesn't last in the atmosphere for a while. So that means that if you're looking for short-term ways to slow the pace of global warming, reducing methane is one of the best ways to do it. And of all the sources of of methane emissions, uh, natural sources like wetlands, uh, but also man-made sources, you know, the oil and gas industry is one of the best ways to make near-term changes that can have a big impact. So methane emissions come from the waste and agriculture sectors too, and there's plenty of solutions and things that people can do to cut methane from those industries. But a lot of the quick wins and the most cost-effective measures come from oil and gas. So that's why, you know, in the run-up to COP26 a couple of years ago, methane started to garner a lot more attention, uh, both in the United States and Europe, and it's been a big focus for the industry in recent years. And what we've seen is that some of the pledges that were made back then are coming a little bit closer to fruition in terms of getting actual regulations and legislation, uh, both in the United States and Europe. So we have new methane rules in the works here in the U.S., and a lot of things are in movement and should be finalized by the end of the year, probably in the run-up to COP28. And in Europe, we have proposed methane legislation, which really kicked off uh, with the EU's methane strategy in 2020, the European Commission proposed its methane legislation in de December of 2021. It's kind of been working its way through the system since then. So the pace is not exactly the same, but there's a lot happening on both sides of the Atlantic. And that's what the recent paper was about. That's great. So I've read the brief. I think it's really interesting. Kind of gives us a picture of what's going on in the US, what's going on in the EU. So before we get into the broader implications uh, and some of the questions that your research raises, I'd love to just cover sort of what you found. So can you give us a snapshot of where the U.S. is? Let's start stateside. 
What's the status of regulations for methane from oil and gas production? What innovations is the EPA applying? And how are companies responding? Yeah, well, there's a lot happening in the United States on on methane regulations. So most recently, in November of last year, the Environmental Protection Agency introduced what's called the Supplemental Proposal, uh, Methane Emissions and Volatile Organic Compounds, or VOCs, from oil and gas. And that was basically the second iteration, the second version of methane regulations. And there were some pretty significant changes in the EPA supplemental. Some things had changed from the previous year. So the EPA regulations now will cover um, a wider range of oil and gas production. So it's going to cover marginal wells or smaller producing wells. It will cover wells over the entire life of production until they're plugged and abandoned. Another significant change is that the EPA regulations will allow some flexibility in how oil and gas companies try to cut methane emissions and how they monitor it. So the goal here is to allow a wider range of detection technology. So a recent change that we've seen in recent years is that there's a lot of new technology platforms that companies are using to monitor their methane emissions. Satellite surveys, um, drone and airplane flights, uh, handheld devices, optical gas imaging. Companies are experimenting with these. There are lots of different vendors and a lot of different technologies. And what the EPA is trying to do is set a very stringent performance standard so that we ensure that operators cut methane, but give them some flexibility in how they do that. So in EPA regulations have adopted essentially a matrix approach rather than being too prescriptive and saying you should use this technology. They're saying we want you to meet this standard and you can decide how you want to do it through different technologies that are available. And it's basically a menu uh, where the frequency of uh, inspections and, and surveys that you have to do really depends on the detection threshold or the sensitivity of those different types of approaches. So that is innovative. It's based on something called the FEAST model that was done by an academic at UT Austin, and it's unique. I think the EPA is, again, trying to set a firm standard, but not really dictate exactly how companies have to meet this. And the goal here is this is such a fast-moving space. There's so many technology improvements that you know it's hard for regulations to keep pace. You almost want to allow this kind of flexibility to let operators make the best choices, the choices that make sense for them. So that was a significant change. I'm also like, I think it is important to give the listener just a clear picture of what's going on, right? So when I think about this from an engineering standpoint, you've got a bunch of different kinds of sensors. None of them can actually measure the thing you want to measure, which is leakage, but you can measure concentrations of methane near equipment or over a basin or over a production site. And so what they're trying to do is use a variety of these different instruments, sampling over different timeframes, using them at different levels of precision or accuracy to get an estimate of leak rates. And I guess the question is, we're not exactly sure what the best combination is. It might vary by site. And the EPA is trying to figure out how to give a flexible portfolio to companies to find the best solutions. Is that roughly the way we should think about it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the challenges is that there is so much data that is being generated by all these different devices and technology platforms. So companies are experimenting with different ways of doing continuous monitoring in sites. We also have data that's coming out from, you know, drone and airplane and and satellite surveys that are coming out for, you know, basin-wide areas or more granular, more specific areas. And integrating all that data is a big challenge. Another big challenge is that Methane comes from all kinds of different sources in the oil and gas industry. So 
It comes from leaky equipment like pneumatic devices. It can come from venting or the deliberate release of, of methane during you know, certain parts of, of oil and gas operations. It comes from flaring or incomplete flaring. And some of these events are really big and some of them are just small, continuous leaks. And to cut methane, you really have to tackle all of them. If you look at the overall problem, a big challenge is how do you deal with the so-called super emitters? So these are infrequent events that are really big and have a big impact. And actually, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is trying to do this with a new program called the Super Emitter Response Program, or SERP. And the idea here is many people are going to have data on methane emissions, and they want to try to leverage this as much as possible. And it's basically a program almost to outsource methane detection to different organizations. So you will vet certain organizations, vet the technology that they use, and then give them an opportunity to put their hand up when they see a major methane emissions event and say, we detected this event. It's coming from this field. Uh, It happened on X date. And to raise the flag and notify the EPA, but also notify operators. So this super emitter response program is something new. Uh, The EPA hasn't done it before. Uh, They really just introduced this idea last fall and have invited comments from companies regulators and others on how it's all going to work. You know, there are some questions about this. I mean, I think the idea of, you know, going to outside third parties makes some companies a bit nervous. Uh, And the EPA still has to clarify some of these rules. Uh, So, for example, how much time do you have before you notify a company that you've seen something like this? How much time does the company have to respond and investigate um, and mitigate the problem? These are all things that need to be worked out according to the rule. But again, this is kind of something new that the EPA is trying and what's the outlook for this regulatory package? When should we expect to see final rules? And, and when do you think the, the EPA will start drafting um, requirements for companies? Well, the EPA supplemental rule came out in November. Again, this is the second version of the rule. It invited public comments. Those closed in February. And EPA is aiming to finalize the rule by August of this year. So that's a pretty ambitious time frame. In parallel, there are a lot of other things happening on methane regulations this year in the U.S. Um, one is that the EPA has to finalize some rules related to the Inflation Reduction Act methane fee. It has to basically clarify the guidance and the reporting requirements. So it's aiming to do that by October. And the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, also has something called the Waste Prevention Rule. They're aiming to finalize that by September. So it's a big year for EPA. They have a lot of work to do. I suspect that they want to wrap all this up. Uh, before COP28, so the U.S. can come to the table, having made some really important regulatory actions on methane. Pretty aggressive time frame. In general, I think that the standards have toughened uh, in the supplemental from the previous version. And I think, by and large, environmental organizations and NGOs are very supportive of this. And generally, the big oil and gas companies are pretty supportive of this, too. You know, the big companies that have pretty ambitious methane mitigation plans and have made public commitments, from my perspective, they're going to be able to meet these requirements without too much trouble. Where you start to see some more objections are from smaller companies that are a little bit more worried about the cost burden, that are not far along the path of adopting all this technology. It's going to be a bigger challenge to them. And the significance of the EPA rules, of course, is that they apply to everyone across the sector. It's not just about big companies or small companies. It's, It's universal. So let's take it across the pond, because one of the things that your paper does that's really interesting is kind of looks at the co-evolving regulatory scenarios between the U.S. and Europe. Europe's not producing a lot of oil and gas and, and probably doesn't have as much of a direct emissions problem, but is very sensitive to methane emissions and upstream methane emissions in imports. How is the regulatory picture there evolving? Yeah, so this process has been underway in Europe for several years But I think the outcome at this point is a little bit less certain. So just to back up a bit, 
the EU introduced the methane strategy in 2020. The European Commission introduced its proposed legislation on methane back in December of 2021. And since then, the process has been, has been working through the system. In the course of this research, uh, I learned a lot about the EU legislative process. I'm certainly no expert, but I can try to just give a synopsis of it as I did in the paper. Please do. You know, I need help. And I'm sure that there's at least one listener who does as well. Yeah. Um, I'll try to demystify it for an American audience, I guess. This is a multi-step process. The European Commission introduces a legislative proposal, and then the other two co-legislators, the European Council and the European Parliament, then can either approve it or make changes. And then the three institutions come together in what's called the trilogue to hash out final legislation. So to recap what's happened so far, the European Commission introduced its legislative proposal for methane emissions in December of 2020-21. And last December, the Council reached general agreement or general approach to the legislation. And it's now with the European Parliament. And where it ends up is a little bit unclear. I think most people expect that the Parliament will want some changes. The reason for that is that the European Council made some pretty significant adjustments with the version that they approved their general agreement in December, especially to leak detection and repair or LDAR requirements and flaring and venting requirements. Generally, these were watered down. Previously, LDAR would have to be performed on a quarterly basis on all kinds of equipment in the upstream, midstream, downstream segments. Now it is less frequent for a lot of pieces of equipment that are less critical. And the flaring and venting requirements were weakened in the council version too. The measurement, reporting, and verification, or MRV requirements, haven't really changed much, and neither have the gas importer requirements. So, as I said, it's now moved to the parliament. Lots of amendments have already been tabled uh, as of March. Plenty of people in the parliament are unhappy with the council changes. They feel like the legislation has really been weakened. Generally, the parliament is seen as more idealistic, more likely to push for tougher rules and, and, and tough climate action. So we'll see where it ends up. And to return to the idea of gas import standards, you know, this is an important issue. There's a basic premise with the methane legislation in the EU, which is that Europe is a big importer of gas. It imports more than 80% of its gas. And because it's a big importer, and as you said, you know, a small and declining producer, the significance is not really so much you know, legislation that applies to domestic production, but rather what rules does it set for gas imports? And a really important goal of the methane legislation is for the EU to exercise its buying power to help drive down methane emissions from global gas. And the idea is that if the EU sets firm data requirements for all gas suppliers to have to, you know, verify the emissions content of the gas, uh, describe what MRV practices they're using, maybe even have this verified by a third party. If they impose these requirements, then the global gas industry will have to step up and produce this data. And so in the, the European Commission's legislative proposal, there was no firm import requirement, but rather the EU said that it wants to create what's called a methane supply index. This is basically an effort to collect comparative data on the methane intensity of gas from various suppliers, whether that's pipeline gas from Algeria or US LNG or LNG from somewhere else. The challenge, I think, is that it's it's hard for the industry to meet these standards, especially for LNG, because you have a lot of different actors and because this detailed emissions accounting is just hard to do. So what is it about the standards? I mean, to me, I go, OK, well, the U.S. is moving forward with you know a relatively innovative package for methane regulations for oil and gas production. We're now the second large, most important source of natural gas for Europe after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So 
you know, I'm going to ask the tough question. Can these two systems work together? Is the U.S. regulatory scheme going to be sufficient to meet what Europe's trying to design on the uh, import side? Yeah, I think that's really the critical question. And it's an area of, of ongoing research for us. Ultimately, what regulators are driving towards is a world in which we don't just use estimates uh, for methane intensity of gas produced in different countries or even in certain basins, but we have real empirical, verifiable data that says, I want to know the exact emissions content of this gas that you're selling me. Do you have the data to back it up? And can you prove it by telling me how you've done measurement reporting and verification and even by having those results or that data verified by an independent third party. That's kind of the dream. And that is quite complicated to do. I think the more we see about methane data, the more we learn that there's just enormous variation, even within basins and within sub-basins from different operators, because you have different operational practices, different equipment, different flaring practices. So you really need to get down to a quite granular level. And so that goal is laudable. It's really important to do that uh, for all kinds of reasons. But from an operator's perspective, it's pretty challenging to meet. And I'll just give a couple examples. So let's say you're a U.S. LNG exporter. Uh, last year, you know, a huge amount of U.S. LNG flowed to Europe. Something like two-thirds of U.S. LNG ended up in Europe, which is a big change from previous years. Now, how do you prove the methane intensity of each LNG cargo that showed up in Europe? I mean, today you can. Uh, there are a lot of practical challenges to doing this. First of all, that kind of granular MRV and the data that's underpinning the whole thing, most companies are just not doing that yet. We may get to that world a couple of years down the line, but we're just not there yet. Uh, and second, we have to consider the way that the global LNG system works. You know, some U.S. LNG exporters, they don't own the gas. They don't produce the gas. They buy it from the grid. So they're buying molecules that could be produced by any number of producers and then moved through pipelines, gathering systems, all kinds of other equipment that is out of their control. So you've got a complex supply chain with a lot of different players. And if you really want to satisfy granular data requirements for methane intensity, that involves a lot of people joining, joining hands and working together. So for the United States in particular, given the number of people involved in the gas value chain, it's just hard to do. If you think about other countries like Qatar, for example, it might be easier because Qatar Energy you know, is present in every joint venture. It's got a stake in all the LNG liquefaction trains. It even has a stake in shipping. It's just much simpler when you're present throughout the whole value chain to do this kind of detailed emissions accounting. They're not doing it yet, but it will be easier to execute. And so ultimately, I think there's still some unanswered questions about how these EPA requirements, the IRA methane fee, all these important regulatory changes in the U.S., how they will first give people more clarity and more certainty about the methane intensity of gas produced by certain operators and in certain basins. And then second, will that be enough to satisfy EU requirements? And the more you look at this, the more you realize the complexity of it, which I think is why the EU import requirement has been put off for a couple of years. And instead, we're starting with still an important task, which is just gathering data on methane intensity, incentivizing the industry to do this tracking and monitoring. You know, to some people, that's maybe a disappointing outcome. It's not uh, demanding enough, but it's an important start. And I do think that it sounds kind of a ripple effect and a signal throughout the global industry. Well, I think that that global industry question is really interesting. You've done previous work on methane emissions in the global LNG system. 
what do you think of this theory of change that Europe is is chasing after, right? Setting strong import standards will affect global markets. You can kind of see an echo of what the European government's trying to do with the carbon border adjustment, which doesn't apply to LNG imports, but does apply to imports of other goods from the industrial sector. So in the LNG context, what do you make of that of that theory of change? I've always thought that a lot of the action is going to happen on the supply side. So regulations for upstream and midstream are more important than the demand pull from buyers. But you know, the attitude of gas buyers and the demands from them are important. They are significant. And the EU does have this lever to use because it is a major gas importer. And because you have a lot of stakeholders in Europe that are asking for this kind of policy. The investors and shareholders and companies are pretty supportive of the idea. You know, ultimately, I think the entire global gas industry has a strong interest in driving down emissions and ensuring that you know, gas is less emissions intensive than the alternatives, which is really coal in a lot of countries. You want to be able to clearly make the case that, you know, burning natural gas produces less emissions than, than coal. But if you look at the upstream and midstream and shipping and liquefaction segments, that in those segments, using natural gas is not producing a lot of methane emissions that could be avoided. So that is a pretty important issue for the industry to tackle. And it's one of the reasons why if you go to an industry conference these days, the conversation on methane is inevitable. I mean, people bring it up at almost every panel. And it's great that the industry has been sensitized to it. The reality is the progress has been a lot slower than many people would like. Some companies have been really proactive in driving down methane emissions that made important changes to equipment and operational practices. You know, EQT, uh, the largest shale producer in the United States, has done some really important stuff here. You know, but for a lot of companies, the, the pace is kind of disappointing. And the reason this matters from a policy perspective is that we have the Global Methane Pledge, which is basically a collective agreement from, I think, more than 150 countries now to reduce methane emissions by 30% by the year uh, 2030. Yeah. And this is this is a conversation that gets much bigger than regulations, right? So at Zero Week, there was this DOE-hosted roundtable, which there aren't a lot of public details about, but it, it, it definitely seems like the US government is trying to find ways to emphasize the low emissions intensity of, of US products outside of the regulatory framework that the EPA is going to apply, but really say, you know, under government sanction or support, US industry can sell cargos out into the world that have a known or an estimated uh, emissions intensity, and one that many people believe is gonna be lower than, than almost all the global competitors. Yeah, there's definitely a strong interest in transatlantic cooperation on this between Washington and Brussels. And, you know, the U.S. does have a strategic interest in ensuring that, one, we can export a lot of LNG to Europe and improve energy security. But two, we can ensure that it's cleaner and satisfy a lot of these concerns about the emissions from natural gas. And the industry is trying to tackle this in different ways. There are a lot of voluntary schemes, certified gas companies that will, you know, verify the emissions content of certain volume of gas that's produced. The goal is to scale that up and to cover other segments as well, maybe be able to certify the whole gas value chain of an LNG cargo. And so I think there's pretty strong policy support for doing this. Uh, a lot of things are cooking, I think, behind the scenes when they run up to COP28 between the US and Europe. So we'll probably see some more announcements. But you know, there's a sense that the industry is moving on this and governments want to support it. They want to help make sense of a very complex array of different 
certifiers and producers and, and try to bring some clarity to the whole thing. And that's the focus of discussion. Yeah, I can completely empathize with that goal because one scenario that seems to me could arise, you have all these measurements that become available, right? Civil society groups are going to be able to do methane emissions estimates of varying quality using satellite data, using instrumentation. Companies will be doing the same uh, in a regulatory context, maybe in a voluntary context. So it it could be that like adding data over the next few years can cause as much confusion as it could cause clarity. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the volume of data on methane emissions is going to grow exponentially. So we have to make sense of this. We have to vet the data, process it, and it's going to be made available to people. So one of the goals in Europe a couple of years ago was to establish the International Methane Emissions Observatory, or IMEO, which really has the mission of integrating all this data from scientific studies, from satellite surveys, and everything else, trying to vet it and make it publicly available to inform policymakers and make you know, decisions possible about the best ways to reduce methane emissions. Uh, but I agree that it's uh, making sense of the data is, is a big challenge. And I think one thing the industry is, is now starting to grapple with, even including national oil companies and utilities, is that the data will be out there. A lot of people are going to be monitoring your facilities. Satellites can do surveys of oil fields in Saudi Arabia, you know, the Permian Basin and everywhere else. And that data is quickly going to be available in the hands of policymakers, regulators, uh, NGOs. And so it really increases the incentives to be proactive. So you mentioned COP28, you know, that's happening in the fall. What do you expect to see or what would you like to see happen between now and then with regard to methane emissions from oil and gas? Well, last year at COP27, we saw an interesting announcement between the U.S., Europe, and some other countries, uh, I believe Japan, Singapore, and some others, to try to drive down emissions from globally traded fossil fuels. Uh, and they made specific mention of, of natural gas and methane, I believe. I haven't really seen that fleshed out. I don't exactly know what the next step is between the U.S. and Europe. I think that's an area of active discussion now between the two capitals. There were also some less high-profile but pretty significant announcements at the last COP from countries like Canada and Nigeria about driving down methane emissions from the oil and gas industry. Uh, I think we're basically in a stage now where we have to move from signing the Global Methane Pledge and getting a lot of countries to join in, which is great, to actual implementation. How are you going to do it? How are you going to do this methane abatement? To me, one of the challenges is that you have a lot of countries like Algeria and Iraq which we know have a huge amount of methane emissions, and yet they don't have the same landscape of investor and shareholder pressure and public scrutiny that a company does in the United States or Europe. So how do you fix that problem? Can you provide technical support and advice, do workshops to let people know when a problem is happening, but also maybe think about financial instruments for abatement? These are all things that I think are really important. And I expect that the next COP, there will be some dialogue about how to bring the laggards along and how to share technology and best practices so that we don't have certain countries that continue to fall behind while others move ahead. I hope that our listeners check out your report. It's really informational. It, it gives, a, I think, as up-to-date um, assessment of what's going on in the U.S. and Europe, as, as I've seen, and I learned a lot. So thank you. But what should our listeners look forward to uh, from you on this issue? Well, the work is ongoing. I think there are still some remaining questions about what happens with plans for a gas import standard and methane intensity standard in Europe. And that's something that I want to continue working on. I'm interested in seeing 
how the industry in the United States continues to grapple with this question about certified gas and private initiatives, along with you know, government efforts to, as you said, create a, a standard for methane intensity. There's a kind of a dance going on between regulations and market forces, and we still have to make sense of this. And where certified gas fits into the regulatory picture is kind of an ongoing story, and I'll be tackling that in future work as well. Great. Well, I hope that people have a chance to download the paper, and we look forward to seeing your next uh, body of work here. But thanks very much, Ben. Thanks, Joseph. Good talking with you. Thanks to Joseph and Ben. There's a link in our program description to Ben's recent work on methane emissions. You can also find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. You can follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening. 